Daniel. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Chris Carroll. I'm one of the co-chairs of the International IP Law Committee, uh, along with Chris Bollinger, who's uh, my co-chair, and he may be on as well. Uh, today, we're fortunate enough to have one of the premier European patent firms here with us to talk about EPO priority issues. Uh, we wouldn't be this fortunate if it wasn't for, I think, the relationship and efforts of Brian Landry to get these experts uh, here today to speak to us. And so what I'm going to do is pass on the introduction uh, to Brian. Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and thanks again to John Brunner and Simon Kiwi Kathari from Carp Miles for taking time uh, to do this seminar. We're hoping to have uh, John and Simon in person in April, uh, but obviously it's been a, a very unusual spring for the entire world. Uh, I got to know John and Simon uh, doing work for our clients, sending cases to Europe, and uh, ha have been very pleased uh, to have their counsel on dealing with uh, some tricky European priority situations. Oftentimes, as U.S. practitioners, I believe these issues arise in the context, uh, or at least the decisions arise in the context of oppositions uh, and other litigations, and often, at least to the U.S. practitioner, uh, seem to be rather intractable problems uh, that are either best avoided or, if not, uh, can, can really seem fatal. Uh, so I've been very impressed to learn about Carp Miles' experience in uh, dealing with some of these problems and thought it would be a, a topic of interest to practitioners here in the U.S. So with that, I'll turn it over to Simon and John. Thanks, Brian, and thanks, Chris, and th thank you for the introductions. Um, as you say, um, we were intending to be um, in Boston uh, around this time, um, and it's, it's unfortunate that, that we can't be there in person. Um, but in some, in some ways, it's, uh, it's good that we get to speak to you by this uh, mechanism, which um, uh, we found uh, does allow um, often a wider debate and discussion. Uh, so, so thank you for the opportunity. Um, uh, just to say that the, the sort of the background for this topic is is that um, we often come and speak to our clients and contacts uh, when we're in the US and then in Boston on issues that are um, very much to do with some of the patent day-to-day -day patent prosecution issues um, and the cases that we see before the before the EPO. This is this topic is 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 a patent prosecution issue, but it's it's the way that Simon will be talking about it in particular um, is with regard to some of the process and some of the um, issues that arise as a result of the chain of title issues on priority. Um, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's good that we've got Simon here. Simon spends um, uh, a lot, a great deal of his time handling uh, chain of title and uh, priority issues. Uh, and Brian, as you say, he's um, picked up uh, cases that have come to us where issues have arisen. Um, the motivation for this talk is a case that Simon's going to focus on, um, uh, which he'll speak to you in a moment. Um, and it's rather apt that this case has allowed him to uh, talk about it from all of his experience in, in handling these issues. So 
I'm going to pass over to Simon. I have a few slides to talk to uh, at, at one point in the presentation. Uh, and uh, Jake, I also believe that you're Jake Marshall from our transactions team uh, also is going to talk to to uh, a further relevant point uh, that's uh, uh, good to talk to for, from a European perspective later on. Okay, great, thanks, John. <clears throat> yeah, um, my name is Simon Kiwi Kotari. Um, yeah, let's get cracking. So um, <clears throat> basically, we're going to qu um, cover <clears throat> quite a bit of material over the next three quarters of an hour or so, um, cramming in quite a lot, actually. Um, I'll very quickly rattle through the main principles surrounding priority rights and use the EPO's recent CRISPR decision to, well, I guess, um, let's not beat around the bush, uh, show you how not to go about claiming priority from a provisional application if you want to succeed in Europe. Um, we'll then move on to a couple of useful remedial approaches which might be taken. Um, and then, as John mentioned, he will discuss um, in, in you know, the other side of um, priority, um, not formal priority relating to the applicant. It's in relation, in, in, you know, um, John will talk about the um, issues of priority as they relate to the subject matter. Um, and then we'll end with a summary um, of the take home messages and that'll be followed by um, a short Q&A session for 10, 15 minutes. Um, okay, so the next slide. Um, at the outset, it's worth pointing out that priority issues don't often get picked up by the EPO during EP, EP prosecution, and it can only often be at the opposition stage when opponents are looking into the priority claim that these issues can come to light. Another thing worth pointing out is that loss of, priority, of the priority claim per se is not a ground for invalidity. Um, you simply lose your priority date and have to re rely on the PCT filing date, although obviously intervening prior art can then often be a problem for patentability. Um, in relation to priority rights, it all starts with the Paris Convention, which is incorporated in the um, European Patent Convention at Article 87 and in the UK Section 5 of the UK Patents Act. Um, as you know, um, Article 4 of the Paris Convention, um, the effect means that disclosures between the filing dates of the earlier and subsequent application cannot be cited against the novelty or inventiveness of the subsequent application. So the applicant for the subsequent application, for example, a PCT application, in order to validly claim priority from an earlier application, such as a US provisional application, should either be the same as the, na the named provisional applicant, or if the rights have been transferred from the named priority applicant to another party in the priority year, the PCT applicant should be the successor in title to the provisional applicant. I mean, the most important point um, to note here, and if you take one thing home from this talk, is that priority rights in Europe revolve around the applicant who is named on the priority application and the applicant who is named on the subsequent priority claiming application, for example, the PCT. I mean, it really is all about the applicant in Europe. Um, these three simple diagrams illustrate this principle. Um, in the top diagram, the priority applicant is the inventor, who hasn't assigned his rights to anyone in the priority year. So the applicant for the subsequent application in this example should be the inventor. In the middle diagram, which reflects the post AIA world, if the priority applicant were a corporate entity, such as the inventor's employer, and there was no assignment to any other entity in the priority year, the PCT applicant should be the company. And the bottom diagram shows who should be named as a PCT applicant if there has been an assignment from the named applicant for the priority application to another party during the priority year. 
Remember, again, it's all about who is named as the applicant on the priority application. Entitlement isn't a consideration here. The right actually comes from simply being named on the priority applicant. And you could actually have Donald Duck as the priority app, um, the applicant for the US provisional. And as long as he hasn't assigned his rights to anybody in the priority year, if you name Donald Duck as the PCT applicant, then everything's fine from a priority, priority perspective. Obviously, if you name another Donald, such as Donald Trump, um, you'll have some issues. Although I guess if you're going around naming Donald Trump as a PCT application, you probably already have some issues. Okay, so back to Europe. Um, and this was a problem really in the recent CRISPR case at the EPO. When the PCT application was filed, someone, well, I guess just got it wrong, um, very wrong. Um, here we have an illustration of the EPO's well-established practice when it comes to analyzing the applicant's priority claim. As you can see, in a situation where you have A and, a and B as the applicants for the priority application, and A on its own as an applicant for the later application, the priority claiming application, um, would you need to show um, the EPO that um, B's rights had transferred to A in order for it to be the, the, the sole applicant at the PCT stage? Yes, you would. Um, in the second, um, second row, we have A and B again as a, um, the applicants for the priority application and A and B and C as priority, uh, sorry, as applicants for the later application. And in this situation, do we need to show a proof of transfer? Um, and the answer is no. And that's basically because you have A and B um, as named applicants for the PCT application. Um, and it was A and B who were also applicants for the priority application. Um, um, the addition of C, um, you know, as an applicant for the subsequent, subsequent application isn't an issue. As long as you've still got A and B there, that's okay. Um, so the validity, the validity of the priority claim is relevant to the determination of the patentability of the claimed invention. The applicant for, of the subsequent application has to prove its entitlement, you know, to the right of priority um, sometimes, you know, as you can see from this diagram. Um, where there's no explicit assignment in place, um, the EPO judges this on the balance of probabilities, looking at all the evidence. Okay, um, I wasn't quite sure um, who, who was going to be in the audience today. So um, just to put all this into perspective, um, I, I think we may have a fairly mixed audience. Um, I thought it might be helpful to, um, for one or two people, um, non-science folk, I guess, um, just to set out roughly what CRISPR is. Um, in essence, CRISPR is a technique that allows scientists to make precision edits to any DNA, whether bacterial or human, um, if I'm correct, I think scientists discovered the technique when studying a bacteria's immune system. Um, CRISPR can be thought of as a pair of molecular scissors guided by a sat-nav. The scissors are DNA, a DNA cutting enzyme. They snip at a precise point in the cell's DNA specified by researchers using a customized guide molecule. Um, the, the DNA cutting enzyme is known as Cas9. Hence, you've probably seen you know, all, the, all the literature and news around this, and it refers to it as CRISPR-Cas9. Um, the CRISPR you know, techniques um, have got you know, numerous, uh, endless you know, um, potential applications, including medicine and, and crop seed enhancement, just to name two. Um, you know, seriously, um, as we all know, CRISPR is a very, very big deal, um, and the stakes in this particular case at the EPO were very high. I mean, one just has to look at the expert opinions which were obtained by both sides as evidence for the appeal hearing. It was a veritable who's who of the patent and legal world in Europe. 
Oh, and, you know, and that's for both sides. Anyway, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, first, let's look in more detail at what had gone wrong is exactly in this particular case. Um, you know, we, you know, basically the co-proprietors of the European patent in question, um, the Broad Institute, MIT and Harvard, um, definitely did find themselves in a pickle and it was kind of a, a pickle of their own making or rather their patent attorney's making. Um, when I was reading up about this, um, most of the sort of like the, the short um, IP commentator blogs that you read, you know, on when you're on your way commuting to work. Um, do you remember when you used to commute to work? Um, I, I've got a vague memory of that. Anyway, one of them, I think, was the IP cat, um, which you may be familiar with. And the, the IP cat um, summed up this case very, very well, I thought. And the IP cat basically said the Broad Institute lost one of it, one of the fundamental CRISPR patents in opposition because of a clear cut case of invalid priority. Boom. I mean, that really does put it, you know, quite succinctly. Okay, so um, the details of the case. There were 12 US provisional applications. Um, in particular, um, the patent claims priority to the earliest two provisionals, P1 and P2, um, is how they were referred to in the opposition proceedings. Um, one of the applicants of P1 and P2, or their successor in title, was not listed as an applicant for the PCT application from which the patent was derived. The priority documents listed microbiologist Professor Luciano Marafini of Rockefeller University as an applicant, but Professor Marafini doesn't appear, didn't appear as an applicant on the PCT application, and no evidence was submitted that um, Professor Marafini had assigned his rights to the, Bro the Broad Institute or any other PCT applicant for that matter before the, PC before the filing date of the PCT application. Um, there had been some dispute, I think, between the Broad, the Broad and Rockefeller University over whether um, Professor Marafini should be included as an inventor on the PCT. Um, and the issue was settled following arbitration on uh, January the 15th, 2018, which was just a couple of days before the opposition proceedings. And at that, at that point, it was agreed that Professor Marafini um, of, the Rock, of Rockefeller University wouldn't be named on the patent. Um, but but and to anybody with an understanding of priority rights at the EPO, this shouldn't have had any significance. You know, either Professor Marafini or a successor in title should still have been named as an applicant for the PCT application. Um, and by the way, there were um, actually nine opponents in this opposition. There was only one non-anonymous non party. Um, the other eight opponents all acted as straw men. Um, the next slide is quite a good illustration of how the intervening publication by Mali et al. put a spanner in the works for the Broad. Oh yes, I, I guess you, you, you may um, guess from looking at this slide and how sort of like snazzy it is that I probably had quite a lot of my times, a lot of time on my hands during this lockdown period. So. Anyway, I do hope you enjoyed the little thunderbolt there. I think it's a nice touch. So um, hopefully this, this sets out the facts quite clearly um, in, a, in, a kind of, in a very sort of like explicit diagrammatic manner. Um, the two US provisionals on the left of the diagram um, are P1 and P2, and these are the applications referred to in the opposition proceedings. Okay, here he is, um, the man of the moment, Professor Marafini. Um, in their grounds of opposition, I mean, the opponents all argued that the patent's priority claims to P1 and P2 were invalid on the grounds that one or more of the applicants of P1 and P2 or their successors in title were not listed as applicants for the PCT application 
from which the European patent was derived. On the other hand, the Broad Institute argued that questions relating to what is an application in respect of the same invention, who is deemed to have filed that application, and who qualifies as successor entitled to the applicant are questions for the national law of the country of the priority application, in this case, the United States. And in the United States, applicants can be added or removed during prosecution, depending on amendments to the claim subject matter. So following this logic, the EPO's case law is actually not in line with the principles of the right to claim priority under Article 87 of the European Patent Convention and the Paris Convention, and Article 4 of the Paris Convention. Um, the Broad Institute's arguments um, were basically given short shrift by the EPO, um, and that was in 2018. Um, they appealed that decision, and that, that took us to this year, 2020. So let's go to the next one. So the key question for the EPO at this year's appeal uh, was basically this. Um, a and B are applicants for the priority application. A alone is the applicant for the subsequent application. Is the priority claim valid even without any assignment of the priority right from B to A? The appellants, the Broad Institute, say the answer is yes. And the respondents, the, op the opponents, said that it's no. And that's it in a, in a nutshell, really. Okay, so where exactly did the Broad Institute go wrong? We touched on this in the slide before last, and I'll go into it in a bit more detail here. There were three issues that took up the four days of the appeal hearing earlier this year. I'll come to them all in a minute, but before everything, <clears throat> um, I'll come to them all in, in a minute. Um, but, you know, and in, in, you know, putting it in a, in a little sort of kernel in a way, um, Everything stems from the difference between the US and European requirements for a valid priority claim. Um, as I mentioned, um, the opponents all argued that the priority claims to P1 and P2 are invalid based on well-established EPO case law. Uh, the Broad Institute argued that the EPO has been getting it completely wrong all these years and questions relating to what is an application in respect of the same invention, who is deemed to have filed that application, and who qualifies a successor entitled to the applicant are questions for the national law of the priority application. And as I said earlier, it's the US in this case. And, and this is, and, and it is in this light basically, that Article 87 of the European Patent Convention should, should be interpreted. And that was the argument you know, of the Broad Institute. Um, as you know um, far better than I do, and please excuse me if I'm not expressing it as well as I could, under US law, um, priority rights are separable, so that an, applic an applicant of a first application only holds a priority right in respect of the invention to which he has contributed. So if a US provisional application discloses multiple inventions, priority can be claimed from such application only from those applicants or inventors who have contributed to one invention which has been claimed also in the second application. Um, persons who haven't made such a con contribution shouldn't be named as applicants. It's simple as that from a US perspective. Professor Marafini, the broad argued, didn't have the right to the invention to which the PCT application was directed and therefore was not listed as an applicant for the PCT application. Um, you know, ultimately, the US has less stringent priority requirements than Europe. An earlier and subsequent application just need to have one inventor in common, and that's it. Um, and this is fundamentally where it all went wrong 
um, in relation to the, the, the broad institutes patent here. Um, and again, I come back to one of the points I said very at the very beginning of this talk. Um, it's all about the applicant from an, e, from an EPO perspective. Um, as long as things are correct vis-a-vis -vis the applicant, then everything's all right. Okay. So summarizing the appeal proceedings, um, there were three things mainly that took up the time of the, um, the Board of Appeal at the EPO. And these were, um, firstly, whether entitlement to claim priority rights should actually be assessed by the EPO at all. Um, secondly, what the proper interpretation of any person in Article 87 is, what the applicable law for interpreting any person who has duly filed is, and the broad's position was that firstly, entitlement to priority should not be assessed by the EPO, and secondly, the EPO incorrectly interprets, interprets the phrase any person in Article 87 EPC and Article 4 of the Paris Convention, and finally, um, the Broad Institute um, asserted that US law should govern the interpretation of any person who's duly filed in Article 4 of the Paris Convention when the first application is a US provisional application, as is the case here. So as, as you can see, um, the, the result of the, the Broad Institute's position you know, would be basically that pr the priority claim is valid. Um, it al always was and always would be um, based on their arguments. Um, on the first point, you know, the, the Broad Institute argued, um, they said that the EPO doesn't have jurisdiction to examine who has the right to claim priority because that assessment amounts to an assessment of entitlement. Um, well, I mean, and the view of the opponents on this matter was you know, just much more sensible. And that was that when the, EPO, when the EPO assesses the right to claim priority, it doesn't assess ownership, but rather, and only to the extent necessary, chain of title. So it, it, only, it, it not only has the authority to do so, but it's, obliged, it's actually obliged to do this in order to determine the effective date of filing for patentability purposes. I mean, it's just the EPO doing its job basically. And that was the point made by the opponents, which is you know, a very valid one. Um, in relation to the point of any person who's duly filed, um, the second and third point really, um, the Broad Institute felt that US law should govern the interpretation of any person who's duly filed in Article 4 of the Paris Convention. And again, and in, in situations when, when the first application is a US provisional application. Um, the opponents, on the other hand, argued that the right to claim priority derives from the formal step of filing the first application, as I mentioned earlier on. The information regarding the person who is duly filed is actually derived from the list of applicants on the priority application. Remember, again, for priority in Europe, it's all about the applicant. Inventor contribution doesn't affect this at all. A few, sli a few slides ago, I mentioned you know, the importance of this case was kind of reflected in the, you know, the ex expert opinions that the various, you know, all of the, all of the kind of opponents as well as the, the patentee um, brought you know, for this appeal hearing. Um, and and it, was, it, was, it was kind of crazy, really. They, they, um, all, all sides had um, affidavits from you know, former Supreme Court judges, yeah, former Supreme Court judges from the UK, from Germany, former heads of the EPO um, boards of appeal, um, top European academics. It was just, you know, a really, it really was a who's who. They were throwing everything at it um, from the point of view of, point of, view of expert witnesses. Um, you know, it really, really was you know, the most important thing in the world to them. 
Also, uh, most, most parties involved um, did expect the Board of Appeal to refer this, the questions on priority right up to the EPO's enlarged Board of Appeal. Um, and there was a slight wobble during the proceedings, um, but the, the Board decided that it, it could answer all of these questions on priority itself. Um, also, um, again, reflecting the importance of this case, five members of the Board instead of the usual three heard the case due to its complexity. Um, the board upheld the findings of the opposition at the end of the day and dismissed the, the Broad Institute's appeal. Um, and that was that, really. So, um, what are the practice points that come out of this? Um, basically, um, the well-established practice um, at the EPO of assessing priority, priority stays as it was. There's no change. Um, the message from the EPO is basically that um, it quite likes its existing case law. Thank you very much. Um, and the Broad Institute needs to get on board with this, like everybody else, really. Um, and just, just I think in um, point one, points one and two in this slide are actually, um, they basically just tell you exactly what you need to do in, in, in a nutshell, really, in these, in these type of situations. Um, the established requirements are still the same. If priority is claimed from a first application with multiple applicants, make sure that all applicants have assigned their rights to the PCT applicant that they have assigned their rights to the PC applicants before the PC application is filed. If an, if an applicant on the first application has not transferred his or her rights prior to the PCT conversion deadline, make sure to name him or her or it as a co-applicant on the PCT application. And, and those, these, this is a wonderful slide. This really does sum up a lot. Okay, so um, now turning to the, the remedial side of things in a way. Um, contrary to what you might think from looking at the CRISPR decision, the EPO is not totally cold-hearted. Um, sometimes it, it can genuinely offer a helping hand, um, and that's what it does um, in relation, you know, from the point of view of you know, what's become known as the PCT joint applicants approach. Um, the problem with the EPO's approach to priority um, is that in each case, the EPO is required to consider the national law of the assignment the, you know, the, the relevant assignment that transferred the rights in order to in order to determine if an assignment of priority entitlement had occurred before the PCT filing date. Um, this meant that where there's no clear assignment in place, um, the applicant has to provide evidence from local lawyers um, you know, you know, to, kind of to support their argument and to, to support their assertion and that the EPO has to essentially determine points of contract law um, the, and that's also the contract law of very, various different foreign countries all, all around the world. Um, there are two essential problems here for the EPO in this approach. Um, first, there's a lot of side litigation around priority entitlement, um, which is, you know, results from this, and that increases the cost and time of hearings. And secondly, and more fundamentally, um, the EPO I mean, it is now required to judge issues of national law. And this was something that, you know, this is something it wasn't really set up for. And, and doesn't it just doesn't fit easily within the EPO's remit, basically. Um, and the, the result of all of this is that over the past few years, we've seen the rise of an alternative approach, the so-called PCT joint applicant approach. Under this approach, the EPO considers a PCT applicant application rather as a single unitary item, rather than an administrative, rather than just an administrative convenience, uh, which represents a bundle of different patent applications. Um, this approach enables the EPO to consider there to be a more, to, to be a common applicant for both the earlier right and the later application, as in the diagram above. Um, 
if you have a look at you know, um, this particular slide and just you know um, the US provisional and the PCT application there's there's an inventor in common and also um, company Y is named And this, the PCT joint applicants approach basically enables the EPO to consider there to be a common applicant, as, as in this diagram, for both the earlier right and the later application, um, even though the common applicant, and uh, in, this, in this particular slide, Inventor X, is not actually an applicant for the EP application. Um, in, in, this, in, in this example, um, in, in, Inventor X, who is the applicant for the provisional, is actually named for US only. Um, but by by you know under the PCT joint applicants approach, and and the EPO's view that the you know, the PCT applicant PCT application you know, is viewed as as you know one sort of like whole item, um, having the inventor there even though he's just there for the US only, that can still get get you out of a pickle. It's quite useful. Um, one very simple yet powerful argument in favour of the PCT joint applicants approach is that the PCT request form itself doesn't actually distinguish as, as to different designated states. Um, the PCT joint applicants approach has been endorsed at the EPO um, by a number of opposition divisions. Um, and whilst these decisions aren't binding, um, there are actually um, EPO Board of Appeal decisions which will be binding. Um, and they were actually due um, around about now, um, but due to the whole, um, the current situation, um, all of these have been deferred. Um, and that, but, though, but we will be get, we do expect to get some um, EPO decisions, definitive ones, as to whether the PCT joint applicants approach is a valid approach, and one you can adopt, you know, if you need to in an emergency. Um, and we should get clarity on that point on this point in October, I think. So um, definitely watch this space. Okay, and what else can you do if things have gone wrong? Um, as we've seen already, um, you know, in the CRISPR example, um, mistakes happen um, with sometimes pretty dire consequences. Um, it's a very clear fact of life, though, um, that people make mistakes. Um, people make mistakes all the time, um, even in the you know the super perfect and pernickety patent world. Um, but people do fundamentally make mistakes now and again. And I guess that's why pencils have erasers at the end. Um, so the incorrect applicant or applicants um, can mistakenly be named on the PCT request form um, or similar form for a convention application um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Um, just, just looking at this slide, I mean, a, a mistake can be made if the provisional applications the provisional applicant's priority rights were assigned before the PCT filing date, but the PCT application was still filed in the name of the applicant list on the USP, USPTO filing receipt and not in the name of the new owner of the rights. So that, that's a mistake. And secondly, the provisional applicant's rights um, were not actually assigned to the proposed assignee before the PCT filing date. And if, if in that situation, the PCT application was still filed in the name of the proposed assignee. Again, that's another mistake. But the good news is, uh, you know, um, mistakes can sometimes be corrected. Um, the effect of a retroactive applicant correction, um, such as one under Rule 91 PCT, or, or um, at the EPO, it would be under Rule 139, um, 
the effect of this is that the PCT application is deemed to have always been filed in the correct applicant's name. And this ability to, I guess, time travel um, means that the mistake was never actually made in the first place. I mean, the, you know, um, not only is it corrected, I mean, the, the officers deem, the patent office will deem that you know, it never happened in the first place and the correct applicant was always named. Um, just um, coming to a few practical points, really. Um, in our experience, um, making corrections at WIPO is very difficult since under Rule 91 PCT, um, the test the receiving office applies regarding obviousness is whether the mistake is one that would have been obvious to the receiving office examiner on the date the PCT application was filed based on the information which, which the examiner had on that particular date. And this makes it really difficult to show obviousness in practice. Um, and it, you know, it, it's just very difficult to you know, correct things under Rule 91 um, at WIPO, basically. Um, and also, um, if a correction is requested at WIPO, um, you need to make sure um, if, if, if you're going down this approach, if a correction request is requested at WIPO, um, you need to make sure not to use Rule 92 BIS because um, basically that doesn't have um, retroactive effect. 92 BIS are generally used um, in, in, in order to record changes that happened after the PCT application was filed, such as changes of name or um, assignments that were executed after the PCT filing days. Although an another um, approach, and, and that's the one we, we mainly use, is actually the, at the EPO, EPO itself. And, you know, um, the We've had quite a, quite a lot of success actually in relation to um, correcting the applicant at the EPO. And as I said, you know, the EPO, um, like WIPO, also has this time traveling effect of the um, of a correction. So if you um, request a you know, correction of an applicant in order to solve the priority problem, um, if that's successful uh, and the, the correct applicant is, 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 may, is, is if, the, if that change is you know, accepted by the EPO and, and the correct applicant is, is um, put in place of the incorrect one, then that has retroactive effect and that was always the case. So the priority issue does go away. Another approach is, you know, could be actually to correct a, um, to carry out a retroactive correction at the USPTO. Um, this could also be a way, again, you know, again, using this time traveling uh, method that we mentioned a moment ago. Um, this is another way of solving the priority problem. Um, so if you um, have a retroactive correction of the applicant, at the USPTO um, and basically put the priority application in the name of uh, the applicant that fits in with the name PCT applicant um, in order to make sure they line up to, to make sure that, you know, to kind of solve any pro, you know, potential priority issue. Um, that, that can also be an option. So um, uh, the next slide um, is an example of a case where we did solve um, a priority issue via a correction. And I, I think John's gonna jump in and speak to this one. Thanks, Simon. Um, uh, yes, Simon. So this is actually a uh, this is actually a, a, a real life example, but it just does draw out the point of a, a further point that's relevant um, when uh, filing uh, the PCT application, um, and it's it's the point about the filing receipt uh, uh, and what's on the filing receipt, and. Um, we have seen situations in the past where uh, the applic an applicant is named on the US provisional filing receipt. And so in this case, we see that there's an 
example company, Victor Pest Control Company. Um, and then also, of course, the inventors are named on the filing receipt. And in the old days, pre-AIA, of course, if um, there was uh, a uh, need, to, well, if, the, if there hadn't been an assignment completed between the filing of the US provisional and the PCT application, then we would have typically filed the PCT application in the name of the inventors. Um, but post AIA, of course, with the name of the applicant company on the US provisional filing receipt, um, the uh, issue arises or, or an issue can arise where because the assignment hasn't been completed from the inventors, um, we see PCT applications come to us where because that assignment hasn't been completed, it's been assumed that we should file in the name of the inventors. And of course, that's a problem uh, as far as the EPO is concerned, because the applicant that is in fact named on the US provisional filing receipt is in fact, is in fact named there. And so as far as uh, the EPO is concerned, uh, the applicant that should be named on the PCT application in this case would have been Victor Pest Control Company. Um, and so it's almost, it's, it's just a flag to say what's important as far as the EPO is concerned is what is the applicant name that's named on the filing receipt. So really no more than what Simon's already talked about. Um, but just to say, you know, you know, when filing the PCT application, it, the important thing is to look at what's on the, on the, on the filing receipt in terms of the applicant name and assuming that there hasn't been any subsequent transfer from that applicant to another entity, then, then that is the, the, the applicant name to be um, in the main using on the, on the PCT application. Great, thanks John. Okay, so, um, and here's what you need to do um, to put together a restoration request at the EPO. Um, there are four criteria for determining whether a correction is allowable. Um, the correction must introduce, introduce what was originally intended. Um, secondly, where the original intention is not immediately apparent, the requester bears the burden of proof, which is a heavy one. Thirdly, the error to be, to be remedied may be an incorrect statement or an omission. And fourthly, the request for correction must be filed without delay. Um, the, the without delay point is, is, is quite important, as although technically um, there's no time bar as long as the proceedings at the EPO are, still, are ongoing um, and the patent application is still pending. Um, the combination of delay and retroactive effect, though, um, you know, does create legal uncertainty um, as you can't determine at any given time what, what, is, the actual, what is actually the relevant state of the art. Um, so because of this effect on third parties, um, that's why the, the EPO um, generally insists that you know you have to file the correction you know not long after you've found out found out about the error basically. Um, also, um, there should be no reasonable doubt as to the true intention of the person on whose behalf the document was filed. Um, so you should file whatever evidence you can really agreements etc. Um, which which support your restoration um, your correction request rather. Okay, and here are some practical tips. Um, I mean, this is basically sort of how we kind of like, you know, do it in, you know, uh, in practice, really. Um, if we're trying to persuade the EPO um, that, you know, well, basically, you know, we, a, client, you know, client will, a client will get in touch with us, um, let us know, oh, um, it looks like either the client will let us know the problem or we'll notice it ourselves. Um, that basically, sort of, oh, there, there is this issue in relation to um, the, the applicant for the PCT. Um, 
the, the, you know, the, the, the one that we actually did name uh, but was incorrect from, you know, from the point of view of priority. Um, can we go about, you know, is there anything we can do um, in order to solve this? And, 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 we, and we say, yes, there is. And, and there is this op you know, option to get a retroactive correction at the EPO. Um, and what we normally do is file a declaration from the person who was responsible for introducing the error. Um, you know, just two or three pages, um, like a, a short witness statement, and that's supported with um, you know annexes such as screen, you know, um, uh, agreements, employment agreements if necessary, and, and all we need to do is basically you know, prove to the EPO that a mistake a mistake was made, and also what what the correct um, applicant should have been, and and generally the EP, the EPO um, you know does allow these corrections, and we've had you know. I, I, I don't think I can recall one where uh, our request has actually been refused. Um, yeah, if, if you if you make it very very clear um, the reasons for it, and also that you know all you're asking to be changed is you know um, something that will have the effect of um, correcting what was what was actually you know, the reality if things have been done properly from the point of view of filing the PCT application, um, and if you can convince the EPO of that, they're they're generally on your side. Um, and yeah, and, and this this slide roughly sets out what you need to what you need to file. Um, the next slide um, relates to whether yeah is is it actually you know is it the right thing to request a, a correction all the time? Um, I guess it's worth bearing in mind um, whether requesting a correction is actually the right approach. You know, in, in, and that, and that depends on your particular circumstances. I mean, since you know correction requests do appear on the EPO's public register. Um, this you know correction approach might not necessarily be possible in other jurisdictions, and 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 that also has um, you know that that can be a consideration if you want to have um, a consistent approach you know throughout all sort of different jurisdictions, um, and and also you know whilst the effective successfully making a retroactive correction, at the EPO can solve a priority problem, and one assumes you know since it's a decision made by the office which actually grants the patent application. Um, this, it's a, a fairly solid thing to have, to have done, and, it, and, and its effect should be permanent. Um, but you know, who actually knows um, how a national patent office in a, in a, in a European validated state um, may consider this during litigation? Because we all know that after the Edwards and Cook case in 2009, you, know, you can't sort of like, um, have retroactive assignments to correct a priority problem. Um, so how come you can have retroactive corrections? Um, although, as I said earlier on, and we've made many corrections at the EPO over the years, and to my knowledge, none of those have ever been challenged. Um, but that is a, a you know a food for thought, really. Um, you know, the, the, the main issue is: do, do you want to kind of um, ha hang your d dirty washing in public in a way? Um, although, if everything is watertight, um, then I think that you know correction generally is you know, um, the, the way to go. Um, and the, the only downside is if you apply for a correction and it's not allowed. Um, then you have you have kind of like you know hung your dirty dirty washing in public, um, and without getting the result you wanted, which is the retroactive, um, you know cor correction, um, and having the applicant in the right name. So you're telling the world that there is a priority problem, um, and it hasn't been fixed. Um, so that, that there is a, a little risk. So, but again, um, in these situations. Um, you know, quite often you're doing it where, where, where it's, a, it's the lesser of other evils. Um, but yeah, these are just things to think about, really. Um, and now we're talking, uh, yeah, John's going to jump in again in relation to priority in, in the wider sense. 
thanks, Simon. This is just a bit of an aside, um, but it's also a point that's worth, or, or a topic that's worth focusing on in relation to um, priority, because as many of you, all of you will, will know, the EPO um, takes a very strict, uh, has a very strict practice on um, uh, adding subject matter during prosecution. But this practice is also one that applies in relation to the ability to claim priority in relation to subject matter that's disclosed in uh, the earlier application from which you're claiming priority. And the test uh, that's applied for uh, making amendments, uh, which is the direct and unambiguous test, is also uh, the same test uh, that, that's applied for determining whether um, the, you can claim priority in that the subject matter that you're claiming priority or the subject matter that's in your claim and therefore which you're relying on to uh, have an early have the um, priority date in the earlier application must be directly and unambiguously derivable from that earlier uh, application. So I mean this slide just summarizes that point the subject matter tests for priority basis and amendment are the same and as you will almost certainly know the EPO is very, very strict on the uh, added subject matter tests for making amendments, but that also applies to the, the priority test. I think the next slide, yes. So um, there are just two further slides here and I'll quickly move through these just to show you, uh, the, the, you know, the issues that can arise, um, conscious of time a bit. But um, uh, one of the issues that can arise is where you have your US provisional with, um, what we would say would be a combination of uh, elements A plus B. In essence, your claim scope is uh, uh, to a, perhaps a specific embodiment or to a narrow embodiment. Um, and then your PCT leading into your European patent application um, is filed with a broader set of claims or, 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 uh, or broader, broader subject matter um, where you claim either A or B, but not the combination. Um, and of course, because the EPO requires that you have the direct and unambiguous basis for A or B in the earlier US provisional, if you don't have that uh, uh, broader standalone disclosure in the US provisional of A or B independently, then uh, you can run into a situation where you don't have uh, a claim to priority for A on its own or B on its own. Um, and uh, of course, if there has been an intervening publication of the specific embodiment A or B, then uh, that can be a real problem uh, because it acts as a novelty destroying disclosure without the va valid claim to priority. Um, now that would, that would be possible to rectify that, of course, if you had a, um, disclosure in your PCT European application of the combination of A and B. But we do see cases that come through to us where there is no, um, whether that disclosure of A and B in combination has in fact been removed. And then you're into a problem that you can't then um, uh, make an amendment to limit yourself to the combination to um, uh, uh, ensure that you do have a valid claim to priority to avoid the uh, intervening publication. Um, but this all stems from the fact that the EPO is, is very strict over the um, uh, need to have the direct and unambiguous disclosure of uh, the subject matter that is being claimed in the earlier application and the broader 
disclosure in essence of the elements A or B on their own if it's not in the earlier application, as far as the EPO is concerned, means that you wouldn't be able to claim priority. Um, this is a, again, this is a sort of focusing on exactly the same issue, um, but we have seen this uh, in the situation of um, in the telecoms area where you have detailed uh, technical disclosures being used to form the basis of a standards draft that's being discussed at a SSO meeting and the, the US provisionals filed you know very short notice just before the SSO meeting um, and of course there's a that, that SSO meeting and the draft of the standard constitutes a uh, disclosure of that subject matter but because what in essence is filed in the US provisional is a detailed technical disclosure with either no claims at all or, or narrow claims, as in they're focused on the specific embodiment. The problem then arises when you get to your PCT, later filed PCT EP application with um, where you want to broaden out your claims. Perhaps you want to cover other options that now exist in the standard. Um, the problem arises, similar as I said before, as before, you don't have the um, the, the basis in the US provisional for that broader disclosure. Uh, and therefore the intervening disclosure of the draft of the standard can act as a, uh, will act as a novelty destroying uh, disclosure um, because you can't claim priority back to the US provisional. And um, uh, I've seen that in, in a quite a large number of cases uh, uh, over the years at the EPO where the earlier filed US provisional um, hasn't been a we haven't been able to use it as a, as a as a good basis to claim priority now you might say that's fine in the in the sense of the if, if you end up needing to focus on the narrow disclosure so long as you've got that narrow disclosure in your later file pct application but often that's not the case as you know standards you know the drafts of standards change and you want to cover different options um, but yeah a, another example of of where this is an issue as I say, this is an aside, but it's just to drive home the point that from a European practitioner's perspective, um, this issue of having subject matter basis is, is, is a very, is, is, a, is an ongoing significant issue and it's, it's different to the topic, the issue that Simon's been talking about, but, but it's still a very important issue that we need to make sure that, you know, we do, if you want to be able to retain your priority date, we do have in the earlier provisional application, the, you know, the, the full basis for what you're trying to claim in your later PCT application. Thanks, John. Um, I think that takes us to um, the last slide, really. So um, what you should really get out of this talk, and I think it just goes back to what I said at the very beginning, really. Um, you know, the main message by way of conclusion here is that in, in any situation where the proposed applicant for a subsequent priority claiming application, such as a PCT application, is different to the, to the applicant for the provisional application. Um, for example, as shown on the USPT, USPTO filing receipt, um, then you need to make sure that the provisional applicant's rights have been assigned to the proposed PCT applicant before the PCT application is filed. Um, again, um, you know, retroactive assignments are no use for solving priority problems. Um, but although retroactive assignments don't work, um, retroactive correction at the EPO does work, and we've, we've made many, many corrections over the years. Um, at, at WIPO, it, it's, a, it's a lot more difficult, um, but in, in, in theory doable. But at the EPO, we, we, we do them all the time. Um, 
and, and finally, I guess, um, depending on the facts of the case, um, the PCT joint applicants approach um, might be a viable option too. Um, um, so that's really it in, in summary. Sorry, I, <clears throat> I keep on getting a, a frog in my throat. I hope it hasn't interrupted things too much. Um, and that's really it really. So from the point of view of this talk, um, a colleague of mine has some slides in relation to um, e-signatures and notarization issues in Europe um, during the, you know, the, the, this COVID academic period. Um, so should we take some Q&As first and then maybe um, discuss, you know, we can present the other slide later on. Uh, certainly, uh, excellent presentation, Simon and John. I really appreciate this. Uh, I guess maybe I can start out with a quick question, uh, sure. which is, it's about this idea of, and John alluded to it, in a provisional application, you have an applicant that's other than the inventors, right? And so under U.S. law, that would be, the applicant can be the assignee or someone who, um, I should say that, it, yeah, it could be the assignee or someone to which the inventors are under an obligation to assign. Uh, have you ever seen an opposition proceeding where someone still challenged? The, um, so, for example, you know, let's say the, the assignee is, some comp is company A. PCT was filed in the name of company A. But there's no record at the USPTO of recordation of the assignment from the inventors to company A. Have you ever seen a scenario where someone challenged the um, the ownership, the transfer of ownership from the provisional to you know the PCT, the European application? I suppose there would be some burden of proof. It would have to be probably something that would raise doubt in the opposition panel's mind. But I'm curious if anyone's still challenged. I have seen it. Um, it doesn't, it depends, the success depends on obviously the circumstances. Now, I've seen it where someone has challenged the fact that there's, there's no evidence of an assignment having been completed from the inventors to the uh, applicant that's on the uh, US filing receipt. Um, now, in that situation, the applicant that was on the PCT application was the same as the applicant on the US filing receipt. So as far as the EPO is concerned, it doesn't matter because there is a valid claim to priority because it's all about who was named as applicant. Um, that said, uh, I have also seen it in a situation in opposition where there was some, uh, there was a suggestion that there had been uh, an assignment, there had been a, an additional assignment in essence from the assignee named as the applicant on the US provisional to a further entity. Um, and then there was a lot of digging around as to whether that assignment did in fact uh, exist. And the applicant named on the PCT application was the same as the applicant on the US provisional, but there was a suggestion that the, the successor in title, or the, the application had in fact been, sorry, the right to claim priority had in fact been transferred to another entity. Yeah. Um, in that case, the proceedings uh, went down a different route. And, you know, as you may know, unless there's, unless there's a fundamental, sometimes at the EPO, well, at the EPO during the opposition stage, unless there's some intervening prior art that in fact is pertinent, the EPO will try and avoid getting into a determination as to whether there is in fact yeah. a valid priority claim. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, John and Simon. This was, uh, again, a really good presentation. I have a question, going back to the CRISPR decision, it, and being somewhat sympathetic to to broad uh, 
you know, in a situation where, for example, you have a priority application filed in the name of two institutions, and then there's some dispute about inventorship and it gets, ends up getting resolved, uh, what could they have done better? Uh, it, because, you know, it would seem that as part of a settlement agreement, which is often rather tense, uh, it's difficult to turn around to the party that's now being removed and ask them for an assignment uh, to the institution that's going to move forward. Yeah, but from a you know from a European perspective, um, in order to maintain priority, they they should have either just named Professor Marafini as an applicant on the PCG application, or if his rights are transferred to the Rockefeller Institute, uh, Rockefeller University, um, they should have been named as an applicant, um, and then yeah, they, they they could sort out further assignments down the line. But there's no and, unless there's all you know, let's say Professor Marafini's rights are transferred. Um, to you know, Harvard or, or, or the Broad or you know, whomever, um, then that would have been okay, but that hadn't happened. So since Professor Marafini had been named as a priority applicant, either he or somebody he's assigned his rights to in the priority year should have been named on the PCT application, on, you know, on the PCT, as an applicant on the PCT filing date, and that wasn't done. Uh, understood. Uh, let me rephrase that slightly. I mean, if Marafini's on the priority application, is there any way to ever get him off the eventual European patent? Or yeah, it, yeah, he, yeah. He 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 doesn't need to be named as an inventor, um, and I don't think he was named as an inventor, and that that wasn't a problem. The problem was it just comes back to this formal priority issue, and and that wasn't addressed. You know, the, the inventorship side of things was a bit of a red herring, really, um, from a European priority perspective. And I think that's where a lot of kind of um, U.S. practitioners get hung up, really. Um, and, you know, that's why we have, you know, we always end up having conversations like this, really, because um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental, fundamentally different view of the whole. It's a fundamentally different view of the same fact, isn't it? Sure. I think, I think what's in, uh, yeah, Brian, I mean, you're, I think it's a very good question, because I think the point is, you know, one way that this could have been resolved was obviously to have named him as an applicant on the, or if, if he had been named as an applicant on the, on the PCT application, um, or they'd gone down the route of correcting it per Simon's suggestion to correct it so that he was in fact named, um, then uh, they wouldn't have got themselves into this particular situation. Um, but for whatever reason, because of the, you know, the inventorship issue, presumably, that was clouding their decision-making potentially on this, you can see why they didn't. They they may have thought that's that's not a good route to go down because we don't want to imply that there's an in, there's an entitlement on the from an inventorship perspective. So we'll go down the other route. But but it's a sort of yeah, it, you know, you, you effectively, you know, once you've once you've gone down one route, it's very it's very difficult, if not impossible, to go down the other route. And so you can see why, you know, if they're trying to um, ensure that looking at it from a from an inventorship perspective that they wouldn't have then named him as an applicant. I mean, the, the, the way to have done that would have been, as you say, to have come to some uh, agreement with Marafini. And then um, once he'd corrected it, ensured that he then assigned his rights back to the correct entities to whom ownership should have been, should have resided or, or whom they, they wanted ownership to reside with. Okay, thank you. I think this uh, brings us to 11 o'clock here on the East Coast. Are, are there any other questions? 
Looks like we're good. Great. Uh, and again, Simon and John, thank you. It's great to hear from the experts in Europe. Cartmills and Ransford, uh, outstanding presentation. Uh, and you know, the next time you're in Boston, uh, I look forward to to uh, meeting each of you in person at some point. Thanks, Chris. And Brian, thank you for for uh, setting up this presentation. You're quite welcome. Yeah, we, we have a we have a, a few extra slides on a separate matter. Is I, either everybody's like leaving the call now, or if some people want to hang around, we can run through that in a couple of minutes. If that would be helpful. Yeah, so that's fine. I see we still have uh, I guess nine uh, nine attendees on, so uh, people can stay or leave us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Yeah, Jake, are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. I'll just meet my camera. Hi, everybody. A different voice for you in just a, a couple of minutes as a sort of the bonus track on the CD. Um, and something else that's come up during this lockdown period is, is people using e-signatures on uh, assignments and other, other agreements. Um, I just thought I'd uh, give you a brief outline of, of uh, the issues that um, we're seeing. Uh, and I can follow up with an article we've got on our website, which kind of gives you the more, more detail. Um, just to, to be clear, from a, a US priority rights assignment point of view or US provisional assignment point of view, these images there is, is just going to be a matter of local law as to whether or not that works under, under whichever US um, law applies to that document. I would say that if you are uh, contracting with a foreign company, it is worth checking whether that company is entitled to use electronic signatures on those, those assignments. But generally those assignments won't come anywhere near the EPA or any of the national registries in Europe. So we're not overly concerned about that. Um, if however you, your, your clients or you are assigning rights that um, do need to be recorded in Europe, or if you're, say you're contracting under a different governing law, it is worth checking whether or not e-signatures um, are accepted um, it's particularly at the moment when it is quite hard to get people in the same room to, to sign things um, in wet ink. Um, so e-signatures, you, you're probably well aware of this, it, it covers a wide range of different means of signing documents, whether that's just typing your name in by email or using something more advanced like a qualified electronic signature. And these are sort of, there are different degrees of electronic signature and it's all about being able to prove the intent of the parties. And, and the more uh, checks and balances, the, the easier the, the assumption that that, that, part, that person intended to apply their signature. From an English law perspective, e-signatures are generally no problem at all. Um, there's no prescribed format, simply writing your name on a, an English law agreement is sufficient. One thing it is worth flagging is that we have a concept of a, of a deed over here, which is a, an agreement that you need to get, um, uh, you need to execute in front of a witness. And we don't currently allow that to happen over video. So if you need to have a, a deed, an English law deed witnessed, the witness unfortunately still has to be physically present in the same room. So it's a bit of a, an unusual um, thing to be aware of. Um, but they can both sign a document by, by e-signature. And go to the next slide, Simon. Um, so it, it's also important to think about where you might have to record your assignment. So say you're assigning a basket of IP rights and you need to then update the ownership details in the various registries. Uh, the UK IPO and also the EU IPO, generally you don't have to file much that has a signature on it, these, these offices, you, you can generally file things and if they want to see the underlying documents they, they will ask for them, but neither of those offices uh, has any particular issues with use of e-signatures. The EPA however does not like e-signatures, uh, they are still very much a wet ink um, type organisation. 
you can uh, use sort of PDF copies of uh, or scanned copies of signed agreements, and you should keep your originals. Um, but they <coughs> they generally don't accept um, e-signatures per se. Um, and then uh, I guess uh, on the other point, if you if you're going to other uh, national registries in Europe, generally the 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 less economically advanced the the, the country the higher the threshold for the formalities, they're more likely to require a wet a wet ink signature. The more advanced they are, the more open they are to, to e-signatures. <clears throat> and there are a couple we found that are making exceptions at the moment during the lockdown and are, and are relaxing their rules to accept either e-signatures now with originals to follow or making other allowances. And if you have queries on that, we've, we've been sort of collecting know-how and, and we, can, we can certainly share that if it's helpful. And then finally, uh, if you need to get your assignments notarized or legalized, that can still be a problem in the lockdown. Um, having a notarized copy prepared of a document should still be okay because you can send the document to the notary and they can prepare the copy. However, having them actually witness a signature is more problematic. Um, if that needs to happen in the UK, there are, there are notaries who are traveling to, to sort of do emergency um, notarizing, if you like. Um, and that can be arranged, it might just take a bit longer than usual. And if you need that in, in other countries, then we can, we can work with local council to see what the options are. Legalising is also problematic at the moment. In the, in the UK, I believe it's currently suspended if you need to get your, your documents legalised. Um, but again, depending on your requirements, uh, drop us a line and we can work with local council to see if there are any, any workarounds. Um, and today, just to finish, that, 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 that we have noticed the various rules being relaxed, so it's not necessarily um, the be-all and end-all. And it's also worth saying, if for any reason you, your, you know, a signature is, is seen to be uh, defective, there's generally a way of, of remedying that with a sort of deficiency notice and, and coming back with a, a properly signed document. So hopefully it's not, it's not terminal. Um, but like I said, we'll share a follow-up article which gives a bit more chapter and verse on this. Um, with the, the attendees and if you have follow-up questions just don't hesitate to drop drop any of us a line thank you okay thank you jake thanks jake yeah i'm glad i stuck around that's excellent information likewise great well uh, thank you uh, to our panelists uh, and to everybody that attended uh, we hope you found it worthwhile thank you be safe everyone thank yeah, and thank thank you for inviting us all the best Thanks, everyone. You're welcome. Right. Thank you all.